Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, today we're going to be looking deeper into the book of John, chapter 8. It's good to see you today. Thanks for coming. We have, uh, I was just turning, making sure my cell phone was off. You're welcome to do that. You're the same. Um, this morning, I, I brought a couple of things up here. I said this is kind of like show and tell. I want to see who all knows what these are. If you can, they're, they're, the yes. menorahs. Okay. One of them is. Menorahs. Now, you said one of them is? This one's different. The right one is a menorah, but I don't know about the left well, one. You're right sure. or my left, right. Which right? My right okay. is a menorah. The other one, I'm not sure. It looks like a menorah in a way, but not quite. It doesn't See, have the star. This, this one that doesn't look like a menorah to me. So we have a dispute here. <laughs> okay, this, the little, the, the silver one, this is the menorah. Okay. Okay. So this is a Hanukkah light stand. Oh, okay. We're going to be looking today in chapter 8 at what was the original service of illumination or the festival of lights, which was, when I say original, I say it was what they celebrated uh, as a part of the Feast of Booths or Sukkoth or the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been talking all about that because this is the time period where Jesus was when he, these teachings in John 7, 8, and 9. So this menorah, of course, was the light stand that was given to uh, the Moses and the commandments of God to put into the holy of holies, into the holy place uh, in the tabernacle. And of course then was put into the, the uh, <clears throat> temple of Solomon. And that, of course, was torn down and, and burnt by the Babylonians. And then when it was rebuilt by Herod's... The, they always had to have a menorah. And you go to Israel, they're everywhere. They have giant ones sitting right outside the airport. I didn't get my pictures ready for you quick enough today because it's been a busy week with VBS. But I have a picture of the giant one. When you walk out of Ben Gurion Airport, there's a giant menorah. When I say giant, it's, what, maybe 10 feet tall or something like that. There's another really big, that's pretty big, yeah, I couldn't light it. Uh, there's another big one right outside Parliament in Jerusalem. That's pretty neat, the big one. And it tells has real ornate carvings that tell the story of Israel. Uh, but this particular one, this was used uh, in a little photo shoot that we did for the ecumenical service back in Boston last year. And so that's why I have it. But the idea is there are seven here on the menorah. There are eight candles, actually nine, counting the servant candle, the slave candle in the front. This is called the slave candle, and it lights the other candles. The eight have their meaning. Now, the... The eight represent Hanukkah. This is the, the Hebrew celebration of Hanukkah. The Jewish celebration of it's the celebration of lights, not from the one that we're describing today, but it's from the story that's found in the book of Maccabees. When there was a miracle of the oil that was that lasted through uh, eight days. And when they didn't think they had enough. And that's a neat story that you can read in the book of Maccabees. I think it's in first Maccabees, I can't remember it's first or second. But that's, uh, these don't want to stand straight. And I, it really drives me nuts when things don't stand straight. So I'll be playing with it all, all hour, and I'll try not to do that because I'll keep it behind Drip me. But a little wax in there and maybe it'll stick. 
I picked this one up right here in a in a thrift shop. No. That golden one right there. Picked oh, it up yeah. in a thrift shop. Wow, love this one. We we bought for the shoot last year, but. Um, they have significance. Does anybody know the significance of the menorah? I told you about the Hanukkah lights from the, the, the miracle of the oil lasting in the lamps for eight days. What about the menorah? Why is it a seven-branched candlestick? Anybody know the significance of that? Well, I think seven days of a week have something to do with it. Seven. Seven's an important number in Scripture, but yeah. there's a specific reference to seven candlesticks. Anybody place where that reference is? It's in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we get a, a window into heaven. We get a window into the throne room of God. In that, John was given, it says, caught up in the spirit, and he was given this revelation. And one of the things he describes are the, before the great altar and throne of God are these seven candlesticks, which he says represent the seven spirits of God. It's a fascinating uh, study. But that has always held its significance that they believe that the seven candlesticks before God. So there are seven right here representing uh, that scriptural. Now, of course, the, the menorah was way before the book of Revelation. But that is a kind of a tie. When you look at the last book of the Bible and John sees in heaven in this revelation this seven candlesticks. And then you go all the way back to Moses and you see that that's what God described for the place of worship to have in it for lights. Isn't that cool how they connect over thousands of years? Okay, yeah. Pretty cool. Well, John, of course, who wrote the Revelation, is our writer in this gospel. And so we want to look at, as we pick up the story in chapter 8, verse 12, we're going to look at a section here from 12 to verse 20 that... We want to think about the witness of the light. Jesus, we are now introduced to a new metaphor for Jesus in a very powerful way by his own words. And that's the metaphor of light. So we want to discuss that and see what all that means. But remember, this is a chapter where Jesus is inspiring us. He's inspiring those who will listen to his teaching to live a life above sin. That's what we ended with last week. Remember the woman caught in adultery and he charged her to go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Go and live a life above sin. How do we do that? Well, we do it by God's grace, of course, and we do it with light. So this is a very important connection to what we were last week. So let's, let's just read verses 12 through 20 and then we'll stop and discuss Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees then said to him, You are bearing witness to yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness to myself, my testimony is true. For I know whence I have come and whither I am going. But you do not know whence I came or whether I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone that judge, but I and he who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I bear witness to myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness to me. 
They said to him, Therefore, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. There's that thought again that keeps repeating through the book of John. His hour had not yet come. Well, this is a fascinating story um, for several reasons, not just because of the metaphor of light, and we want to discuss what that means, but also because Jesus is powerfully demonstrating his oneness, his unity with the Father, with God Almighty. And that's important for us to discuss in the witness. So let, let's, let's begin with some thoughts here. In the Old Testament, light was always associated with God. He created the world, let there be light. When his presence was needed, it was always in light. Remember the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness in their wilderness journey? That pillar of fire illumined even the darkness. The light okay. Moses saw on the, mountain. the light burning from the bush. So think about it. If, if, if God had a pillar, he had a cloud, a pillar of cloud, it says, that led them. His presence was in that cloud, and that cloud led them as they journeyed through the wilderness in the Sinai Desert in the, in the journey from the Exodus. So they knew his presence was there. But when darkness falls, it's kind of important to know his presence is there. If we're out camping, what do we want to do? We want to build a fire, don't we? We light a lamp or a lantern or something now. Building a fire is really good because it keeps away wild animals, they say. I don't ever test that theory. <laughs> don't usually go where the wild animals are. <laughs> usually. Although one time we were in Colorado on vacation um, with your parents... I believe your parents were with us then. Yeah. And um, we were up in the mountains, and um, we heard a noise, and there was a bear on the deck. Oh. <laughs> yeah. My dad, the brave guy that he was, was going to go see what it was. He opened the door and was stared straight at a bear. I never saw my dad move that fast. He shut that door. So he shut that door. Um, but I don't try to go where the wild animals are, but I would sure love to have a stick of fire if I were near one. Uh, so the idea was, but in the darkness of the desert, can you imagine, there was this presence of the pillar of fire light, lighting up. And if you've seen pictures, artist renderings, that huge pillar, you know, going way high into the air, it would light up the whole camp. Well, now I want you to come forward into the time of Jesus, into the festival of Sukkoth, or the festival of tabernacles, and in this great celebration, inside the walls of the temple court and historians tell us it's inside the court of women now you, you might not remember the temple real well but remember the temple is a building like this the actual temple edifice itself and then there are different courts around it and this is pretty simplistic you know the, the outer court is the court of the Gentiles remember that anyone could go in there even the Gentiles that's where a lot of commerce was done, a lot of trading, a lot of teaching. You had the Solomon's portico around the edges. Jesus would often teach. A lot of teachers would teach in there. But one of the inner courts, there's, the, there's an even inner court in here called the court of the Israelites. That's called the court of the Israelites. But this one right here is called the 
And it's a fairly large court. This is called, anybody know what this inner court is called? What? Yes, the court of women. Why would they have their own court name? Because they can go there, but they can't go any further. Okay, they couldn't go past this court right here. Then you get into the actual area where only the uh, men of Israel could go, and then, of course, only the priests. <coughs> but in the court of women, again, there is a place called the treasury. There is a place, um, there is a, a place where the offerings were put, these big, beautiful, they had these big, beautiful golden uh, basins that were shaped like trumpets. And they, were, they would have the, the narrow end at the top, like if you stood a trumpet upside down and it flared out at the bottom. And I can't remember, but I think from my studies there were, I want to say, 13 trumpets. And each one had a different meaning of what you would put your money in for. Some kept the wood for the fires burning for the, uh, for the sacrifices. One bought grain, one bought, if you needed to buy doves, or all these different things, you would put your money in these. And, and some of the stories that we've heard Jesus talk about when some of his parables, you know, the people would walk in and they would throw their money in and you'd be loudly clanging down this trumpet, this golden trumpet. They wanted to be noticed how much they gave their money. And then, of course, the widow came in and she just puts her little last two cents in. That's, that's visualize. Why don't you visualize all these trumpets? Well, in this area, there were also, besides these trumpets, there was also, these in the court of women, four giant menorahs. Four giant menorahs around in here. This, uh, historians tell us they were 75 feet tall. 75 feet tall. That's a big menorah. That's a seven-story building. And part of the festival, on the last night of this festival, the last night of Sukkot, remember each day how they poured the water from the steps and Jesus stood there and said, I am the, you know, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And, he will have rivers of living water flowing from his innermost being. Well, now, on the last night, they would light these at sundown. And they're, I mean, they're huge. They would give light to the whole city, it seemed like. So, again, there's a very uh, symbolic meaning to this lighting. Does anybody remember what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 9 about light? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, And those who walk in darkness, on them a great light has dawned. Do you remember what Jesus said about light in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say about light? He said, you are light. Remember that? He said, you are the light. And you are a a city set on a hill. Let's read it here. He said... uh, you are, this is chapter five fourteen in Matthew's gospel. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what they're doing with this festival of lights. They're reminding themselves and everyone who comes within miles of Jerusalem. There is this great light shining over Jerusalem. And it is the light of God. And it, it has led them ever since they've been God's people. And so they're celebrating the light. And into this, Jesus steps up. And Jesus begins to teach. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
Well, that's pretty amazing. They know God Father as light. They don't even really call him Father much. You know, that's in, in all of the Old Testament, you know the word Father. We just finished Father's Day. In all of the Old Testament, the word Father as relate, as relate to God is twice. Only twice. And I know one is in Isaiah, and I'm thinking the other's in Jeremiah. I can't remember, but it's only twice. So that God had many names. You know, he was El Shaddai, the Almighty God. He was, you know, had all these names for God that represented his characteristics. But in the New Testament, there's only one name for God. Father. Jesus continually uses that name as if to show us that now in the fullness of time, we should understand, yes, while God is mighty and he's all those things, he is above all our Father. And into that setting, the people have always understood God to be the light. Jesus said, I am the light. Now, they've had this, this is just one more way in which Jesus is compounding their frustrations because they keep seeing him put himself in the place of God. You're the living water? No, God was the living water. God fed us from the rock. God fed us, you know, all these all of these metaphors. And now Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Let's explore what he might have meant by that. Let's think about it out loud here. Do you remember back to the very first chapter in the book of John? Chapter 1, so it would have been our first lesson. Do you remember what John said about light in chapter 1? See if we can recall it here. I'll turn back to it. John chapter 1. It was in the very first few verses. Verse 3 says, well, let's just read verses 1. Let's start at 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And verse 4 here says, And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So in the beginning of the book of John, John is calling Jesus the light. He's the word of God, and he's the light of the world, the light of men. He shines in the darkness. And then in chapter 8, we see John writing, for Jesus speaking himself, I am the light of the world. In the first epistle that John wrote later, way back in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 5. Anybody recall the reference to light there? He who walks in light. Yes. Yes, let's, let's read it. Let's jump back there and read it. He who walks in light has fellowship with him. And in him... Listen, let me just read it here. Chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship one and one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So John is very clear that God is light. We know that many of the Trinitarian doctrinal teachings come from the writings of John. 
when he tells us that the word was God and that God is light and Jesus is light. And we know that there's this unity of, of being here uh, that, we, that we know as Trinity. This is important stuff. So important that what we want to do to really understand how could that woman at the end of chapter 7 go and live a life above sin unless she had great light shown on her way because she was trapped in a world of darkness. Okay? We're all trapped in a world of darkness without the light of God shown on our path. So this light and dark metaphor is huge through the Bible. John writes about it even later in, in, in the, his first epistle too. He, he talks about the, the, uh, the things that happen in the dark um, and the drunkenness, the carousing and things like that. Peter talks about that as well. A lot of the apostles, they, they always, t- darkness is where evil is. But the light is God's presence. So Jesus says, I'm the light. The great light. One of the things that I think we fail to understand about Jesus that I want to make clear this morning as we think of a Trinitarian teaching here is that Jesus, and we talked about this way back in the Gospel of Mark when we talked about the Mount of Transfiguration. I know a lot of you weren't here in that study, but you can go back and listen to it. The Gospel of Mark, when we talked in chapter 9 about the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember that story? Where Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up onto Mount Tabor, and there it says he was, Jesus was suddenly transfigured, and with him was Moses and Elijah. And, and it said that they saw his, his, uh, his garments shone, his whole being just shone as white as different translations, some say, as white as Fuller's soap. <laughs> Somebody was just trying to reach there for, what's the whitest thing I can think of? And it's whiter than that. Or brighter than that. Okay? One of them is whiter than snow. Whiter than snow is a very biblical uh, from the uh, Psalms. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What, what are we trying to say here? What was Mark trying to say? And, and, and what is John trying to say about this light? That it was pure. It's pure. And here's what... Here's, so that when Jesus revealed himself on that Mount of Transfiguration, what they saw was the uncreated light of God. Amen. Think about that. All light in our world is created, but something had to exist before creation Amen. that was light to create that light, to be that source of light. So life has, light has two things that I want to give you today. It has both... Uh, it's, it's not only a symbol of God, but it is a source, okay? It, ha- it has to have a source, and it is life. What lives in the darkness? Satan. What grows in the darkness? Sin. Satan, sin. I mean, I'm not a botanist or a biologist or anything, but does anything good? What bugs? Bugs. I think spiders and snakes love darkness. Mold. Um, I'm, I'm not a hey. biologist or a botanist, but there's not much well that'll grow in total Biologists. darkness. Viruses. Oh, those Viruses. They like, dark they like dark places. See, darkness. Mushrooms? Mushrooms? Yeah, I know there's a good reason why I don't like those. 
I, I've never understood love for mushrooms. I, I'm not there yet. It's a fungus. What other fungus in the world? How do you want to eat a fungus? But, but what I want us to see is that, is that light is the source of everything. We go back into the creation story. And God said, let there be light. The created light in our world, the sun, the moon, they all are reflections of the glory of the uncreated light. That is Jesus Christ. That is what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw a window into the glory of heaven. Now, transfer yourself to the book of Revelation again. And a lot of the imagery talks about the brilliance of the light, the shining of the crystal sea, the light that shone around the throne. Everything's this beautiful, brilliant light. And we will see that one day. Amen. And so what, but, but Jesus says, we need to see that here this day. Somehow we've got to see the light of God. Amen. That's how this woman's going to go live a life above sin. That's how you and I are going to go live a life above sin, is only if we as John says, walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Okay? We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with Jesus Christ when we're in the light, in his light. Now, this idea, Jesus says in this verse, let's look at the very first verse in verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness. So there's a promise from Jesus that, that there is this thing called following him. We have to figure out what that means. Because if we can figure out what it means to follow Jesus, then we know we will not walk in darkness. That's a promise. That's a, that's, Jesus is just setting the, the, the stage of life for us. If you'll walk, learn to follow him, you won't walk in darkness. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Follow the word. Follow the word. Let's look at the word. The word is a Greek word in the in this scripture. The word is a Greek word, uh, and it's kind of a difficult pronunciation. I think it's akoluthin, akoluthin, and it is a word for follow. And it has, interestingly enough, in the Greek, five different meanings. Let's listen to those meanings, and let's think about the life that you and I are called to live in following Christ. The first one is a meaning, it can be used as a meaning for when a soldier follows his captain. Okay? okay? Soldier follows his captain. The next one is when a slave follows a master. Follows a master, correct. The next one is, number three, is when we uh, accept, I'm going to use the word accept, Accept wise counsel. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yep. Okay, so somebody gives you wise counsel, you want to follow their counsel. You're accepting their counsel to follow. Number four is that when we obey law, we're said to follow the law. Right. That makes sense? Yep. And number five, the final one is uh, a teacher's, to follow a teacher's explanation. So, the way a teacher explains something, we are said to follow them. If we believe in that teaching, the teacher's teachings, we follow the teacher's teachings. Does that Jesus make sense? Jesus is our teacher. So, which one of these does not apply to Jesus? 
they all apply to Jesus. Jesus is our captain. He's sometimes, some old songs that call it the captain of our soul. Okay? The captain. Jesus is our master. The very word Lord, in its original Hebrew, Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, I, Adonai, means what? Master. Means master. It's a master-slave relationship. Lord, someone is your Lord, they're your master. Well, he's the wise counselor. He, Christ is God, you know. His teachings are pure, so we need to follow him there. Uh, he is uh, the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So we want to follow him. As he obeyed the law, we should obey the law. Okay? Now, I find that an interesting one. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to put a little asterisk there because I'm going to come back to that. And, of course, Jesus is the wise teacher. We want to follow what he teaches us. So in all senses of this Greek word, to follow, they all fit the life of Christ. And they all make sense for us. Let me think about the one with the obedience of the law. And I really like that one because um, sometimes that's a tough one. We think of laws as, as uh, restricting, not freeing. Don't we? But in this case, it's, that's not true. It's not true with Christ. No, because that, the, the obedience of his word, his law, if you want to put it that way, is free, freeing us. Yeah. Have you ever heard people say that they don't want to be Christian because they want to be free to do whatever they want to do? Yeah. You Christians have too many rules, too many laws. I want to drink alcohol any way time I want. I want to get drunk. I want to uh, have sex whenever I want. I want to do all these things. And you Christians have too many laws, too many rules. You're not free. I'm free. Well, who's really free there? This woman... He's in, not this, free because he's, he's, he's a slave to sin. And, and he, see, here's, here's the beauty, and we'll miss this if we're not careful. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul says that in Christ I have this thing called liberty. In Christ, I am free. But not all things that I do are good for me or that I can do. In what sense is, is, it, uh, is it that we can do anything in Christ? And we truly can, as long as we understand they're not all going to be good for us. You want to go get drunk? Go get drunk. God says it's a sin. You're going to pay a penalty for it. Okay, there's going to be a penalty for it. There's going to be a price. It's not going to, God's not going to withhold his love from us. He's still going to love us. But there's going to be all kinds of consequences for our sins. So, but then comes along Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all law, the only man to ever walk this earth who could perfectly keep the law, who the, the residence of all law abides in him, and in him... He frees us from the law. So, I don't know, was fungus, I, what, do, 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 do Jewish people eat mushrooms? Sure uh, but sure, it would sure fit my case here if they don't. I don't know if they do or not, but as, as good as their dietary laws are, and as clean, you know, clean versus unclean, I would think they wouldn't like mushrooms. I'm going to have to ask my Jewish friend about that. Because I, I want to know now. I want to know. Because I was going to build a case for why you do not eat mushrooms. <laughs> You can. You're free to if you want to. Be free. But there's a consequence. <laughs> what did you say, Ron? Did you see any when we 
I don't remember ever seeing any mushrooms in Israel now. I mean, they have these huge salad bars. I can't remember. Of course, I don't look for them because I don't like them. So maybe they were there. I don't know. But you can have that instead of me. You're free. You're free to do anything you want to do, but you're going to pay a price for some things, okay? <laughs> you eat the wrong kind, they can be deadly. <laughs> eat, the wrong, eat the wrong kind, they can be deadly. They can make you really sick. So uh, what, here's what I want us to hear today. In all things, we're, we're called to follow him. He says, I'm the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness. That woman needed to hear that. She's probably in the crowd. I mean, you know she had to come back and find this guy who loved her and didn't condemn her. She's probably listening to this. You and I need to listen to this. And, he, and, he, and the, immediately he's met by a challenge. The Pharisees immediately challenge him. And what do they challenge him on? They challenge his testimony. They say, you are not valid because you're testifying to yourself. And you're testifying against things that we've always taught. So therefore, you can't be right because the law in Moses teaches us that for a man's word to be true, there must be at least two witnesses to it. That's what they're saying. They're trying to catch him on a legal technicality. People in this crowd shouldn't follow you because you're a single voice crying out in the wilderness and you are not true. If you were true, there would be more voices. So what does Jesus do? Does he say, okay, Peter and James, get over here. <laughs> Here's my two witnesses. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't need to do that. He, 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 he applies to a higher standard. He, he tells them, you don't even know me. You don't know my witness. The Father witnesses to me, and I witness to the Father. The Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. I mean, listen to some of these words. He, he says, uh, you don't know me. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know where I've come from. He says, uh, I bear, in verse 18, I bear witness to myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness to me. I love that. Jesus just says, you bet I bear witness to myself, because I know the Father bears witness to me. And they knew who he meant by the Father. Yeah. They knew he was talking about God. So again, their rage burns stronger. And what is Jesus, what, did, what are we ultimately supposed to learn from that? About this testimony of Jesus and, and the Father. And our testimony can be true also. Would, if we're, That's if right. We're in, in coinciding with the word. When we know something is true to God and his law and his moral standard and his love, we must do that which we know is right. We must stand for that which we know is truth, regardless if we're the only one here That's to right. do it. Amen. There is a sermon I read. One of my, <clears throat> one of my favorite preachers was a preacher named G. Campbell Morgan. Anybody ever heard of G. Campbell Morgan? You might have heard his name or seen him on some old books. He was the minister, the senior minister, of the Westminster Chapel in London, England. At two different times in his career, he was there for like the first 40 years of the 20th century, roughly. Then he was gone for a while, retired. Then he came back. And that church is an amazing church, uh, Westminster Chapel in London, had in the 20, in all of the 20th century only had three pastors. Pretty amazing. The one that followed uh, G. Campbell Morgan was uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. 
Now we're getting a little more contemporary. He was writing books in the 50s and 60s. You might have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Written many books. And then who followed him was a man named uh, Kendall, R.T. Kendall. And you've heard me talk about R.T. Kendall. He wrote the book Total Forgiveness. R.T. Kendall was a little Baptist preacher from Kentucky who grew up and ended up being the minister of Westminster Chapel in London, England. Go figure. Uh, great, great thinker and writer and preacher. Um, but we go all the way back to G. Campbell Morgan. And one day when I was research, I was just walking through our library in here, you know, the room next door to us. And, and we had on the shelf in our library a series of old books. And they were the complete sermons of G. Campbell Morgan. Well, I... Uh, I got infatuated with him. I did. <laughs> I confess to Almighty God, <laughs> to you, my brothers and sisters, <laughs> that I took those books off that shelf because nobody else was reading them anyway. <laughs> and I took them into my library, my personal library in my office, and I began to read those sermons. <laughs> I am right now. I'm right, you're, my, you're my confessors. I'm, I'm confessing to you. Uh, inside those books, it says donated to the library by um, uh, Dr. Morgan, Dr. Lou Morgan and Betty Morgan. And I just would have loved to have, uh, have uh, asked them if they were related somehow or had some distant. Because that was an obscure thing to find and donate. I mean, these books are old. His sermons are incredible. Just, oh, it's I mean, it's biblical teaching. It's just, wow. He just takes a verse and just begins to exegete it. But I, I will never forget one of the sermons that I read. He was talking about this very fact. He said, no matter what happens in our world, no matter how much people begin to deny or reject the truth of Jesus Christ, and even if we are the only one left, that stands for that truth, we must obey. Because we have the witness of the Father. Amen, that's right. We know it's not just us. We have the witness of And he said, what's wrong is wrong even if everyone else believes it. And what's right, and this is a quote from his book, what's wrong is wrong even if everyone else believes it. And what's right is right even if no one else believes it. That's what Jesus, that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. I have the Father and his testimony, and it really doesn't matter if you guys believe it or not. And I'm going to preach it, and I'm going to teach it, and we'll just see who comes to the light and who doesn't. I love that about Jesus' style. He just tells them the way it is. And, and he says, you judge. In verse 15, he just accuses him. He says, you judge according to the flesh. And then he says something interesting. He says, I judge no one. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we hear that. Sometimes we hear Jesus saying, I, I judge no one. And other times we hear him say something about being the judge. Um, in what sense is Jesus Christ the judge? And in what sense is he not? I think it's important. Here, I want to shine some light if I can. Okay, if I can use that metaphor. Use the light of Jesus. Okay, it's not my light. I want to shine a little light into our lives on understanding God. To judge... To judge, you must have, in our worldly context, we think that to judge, you must have what? Knowledge. Yes, key word I was looking for, knowledge. You must know the facts. You must know everything as impartially as you can in order to render right judgment. But in the economy of Almighty God, we know that He has all knowledge. It's not a question of whether He has all knowledge. 
So for to send Christ into the world, what did Jesus need to have to be, to be worthy of being a judge? Even more than that, Jesus had to have life. The way of life. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he had to have the goodness of his Father. He had to have the goodness of his holiness. Jesus could only stand as judge, and he could only be believed if his life were believable. That's right. If, his, if the truths that he expressed in his teachings were lived out in his life. And that is the same for you and me. You and I, whichever that is. That is the same for us. We must, our life must be a witness to what we say we believe. And if there's any inconsistency there, the world doesn't see the connection to Christ as Savior and God as Lord of all. They just don't. Now you say, Brad, we're not perfect. No, we're not perfect. But we can have perfect hearts. So that when we fall, we didn't fall on purpose. See? That, that's the hallmark of the Wesleyan holiness revival and tradition. That is what Wesleyanism tried to bring back to the kingdom of God on earth that had been missing for centuries. Because the world had been trapped in darkness in the Western church. The Western churches of the medieval times had gotten so legalistic about who had the power to forgive sins and what you had to go to the church for in forgiveness and so much so that you could even, you could do this sin and actually if you gave this, that would nullify this. I mean, there was all kinds of craziness being taught in the medieval church, in the medieval times. And into that, the Protestant Reformation tried to begin to take some things in a new direction. And into that, finally, it came to the Wesleyan, the English Reformation of John Wesley, to really introduce what were there all along, what the early church believed about holiness. That it's about a life of love and service to God and man from a heart of pure love. And that we, if we don't have a heart of pure love, we need to keep praying until we do. Not settle for I believe, okay, I'm a Christian. I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a Christian. It's okay. God loves me. I'll just live out my life, do my best. No, let's strive to do God's best. Right. Now we're trying to put ourselves on, on a whole new level. And it's not easy. No, it's not easy at all. And, and it takes a great deal of humility because we have to begin to then recognize when we fail that our failures reflect hugely on the God that others we want others to see. On our God. So, holiness is really at the heart of the life of Christ. And that's what allows him to be judged. He has the life to compare us to. To compare everything to. And, and that's the standard. It becomes the standard. So he says, I judge no one. I, I guess Jesus doesn't need to judge. You know, in a sense, he doesn't need to judge. Because literally... I know in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 25, there's the great judgment, and we talk about the people that come, and he says he separates them as the sheep from the goats. You know, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, the sheep did these things, you did these, you lived this life of love. You know, the feeding the poor, and the clothing the naked, and visiting the sick, and all these things that are called good works. 
Okay? He said, you did these in love, so enter into the joy of your master. Looks at the goats over here and says, you didn't do all these things. Go away into everlasting darkness. So Jesus is the judge there. But yet he's really not in the sense that we judged ourselves. You and I truly do judge ourselves. Everyone judges yourself. Either obey or you don't. And if you don't, don't blame God. So the real preaching of (laughs) the old time preaching of hellfire and brimstone, you know, let me tell you where it went wrong. Nobody wants to do it anymore because it lost something in the message. I believe there's nothing wrong with preaching about hell. There's nothing wrong about preaching about eternal damnation as long as we don't make God the dammer. I don't even know if that's a word. But if we don't, because, because it's not God who damns us, we damn ourselves. We judge ourselves. He's the light. He's the love. He's given us the light. He's given us salvation if we'll just take hold. But if we don't, don't blame him. God sent his son. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to judge the world. No, to love the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. So if we, if we, we either believe or we don't. If we believe, we're going to be lights. We're the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. If we believe we're the light of the world, then that light cannot be hidden. God's light cannot be hidden. You can't snuff it out. I think of the martyrs of the church, both ancient and new, whether it's St. Irenaeus or it's so-and-so living in Syria who at the point of his captor's knife had his head cut off. But all he said was glory to God. That's, (laughs) you can't snuff out his light. His light just got stronger. His light just got stronger. You can't, martyrdom has always made the church stronger. Well, where are we at today? Where does John chapter 8, where does the light, the witness of the light of the world speak to us? Where do we go from here? What do we do with this kind of truth? As we study this book, this book of John, I want us to continually be reminded that we are going deep into the heart of God. We are not studying history. We are not studying a chronology of the time of Jesus. We're studying the depth of the meaning of who Christ is, who God the Father is, and who the Holy Spirit is. And before we get through with it, this full doctrine of the Trinity is going to be developed in our minds and our hearts. Jesus is at this point talking to us about him and the Father. Notice the many times he speaks and has already spoken about the Father and him being uh, in, in, this, in sync, if you will. Um, and he says right there in verse 18, it's the Father who sent me. I bear witness to him. He bears witness to me. You're going to hear words of Jesus to say things like, I and the Father are one. We're going to talk about that when that time comes. and It's not very far, not very far away in this book. When we get past <clears throat> chapter 9, we really start working into the last epics of Jesus' life on earth. And he did a lot of teaching to his disciples in those middle chapters, you know, 13 and 14 and 15. He talks a lot about the life 
of the Holy Spirit and what we can expect and what it's like. And, and this is where much of our Trinitarian beliefs come from. So, but for today, for today, it's enough for us to learn that Jesus is connecting the Old Testament and the New. The, the, the light of the world that you always believed about God, it's me. Jesus is, he doesn't use those words, but that's what he's saying. I am the light of the world. I'm the one. I put the stars in place. <laughs> As John says in chapter 1, there was nothing created that wasn't created by him. Jesus is the creator. So what do we believe about Jesus? Um, I want to always point you back to the historic understanding of God. He's one with the Father. That is called, yes, that is called the Nicene Creed. Okay, as we go forward in this book of John, I'll print it out for you and I'll give you, um, I'll give you a copy of it. You can tuck it away in your Bibles because we don't say it a lot in our services. Uh, we almost never say it, but it is in our, in our uh, service books. Um, I'm sad that we don't recite the creed more because it's very powerful. It's very powerful. It's very spirit-forming. Um, spiritual formation. Reading your Bible should be less about knowledge and more about formation of the spirit. This podcast series, the, the, the title the Lord gave me to give it was Forming the Spirit Within. So if you go to the webpage, it says Forming the Spirit Within. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say we study the word not for knowledge. We study it to become formed into the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God is formed within us. Spiritual formation is everything. And we need to, to be formed in the Spirit. You need to do things that are spiritually forming. And that means pray. That means read, but that also means to, uh, to study. And one of the things I believe in prayer and, and reading is, is powerful to me. I would challenge anyone. I would challenge you here. Go read the Nicene Creed in your private prayer life every day for 30 days. Go try it. Go do it. You're going to print that out for us? I will print it out for you, sure. But you, for now, you can go Google it. I, didn't, didn't, I don't always know. I don't have it mapped out exactly where I'm going to end these classes. But uh, I... You, you could Google it, the Nicene Creed. And it's, a, it's the earliest statement of faith. Okay? It was written between the years 325 A.D. and 381 A.D. And it deals with who is God the Father? What do we believe about Him? Who is God the Son? What do we believe about Him? And who is the Holy Spirit? And what do we believe about Him? Okay, and it stand and it will forever stand as the definitive statement of who God is, and He is triune. We believe in God. How the do Father. you spell Nicene? N I C E N E N I C E N E Nicene. That means because it was formed at the Council of Nicaea, it was of Nicene origin. <laughs> Nicaea was the city where the very first ecumenical council of the ancient church was held in 325 A.D. The last part about the Holy Spirit, it just ends, the first part, it just ends with the words, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't want to say what we believe about the Holy Spirit. That, that was added in 381 by the next great council, the Council of Constantinople, in 381. And so they formulated a little deeper. Those two, and then in later councils, they always came back to affirm that creed. Now, when we get to 
the later chapters in John, we'll talk more about that creed, but that became the division between East and West because the West began to tinker with the wording of that creed, especially as relates to the Holy Spirit. That's where they did it. Oh, you have one of my old ones. Wow, look at this. She's carrying one of my old ones in, the, in her Bible. This was the thing I printed years ago for one of the classes. It's called the, uh, it's the Ancient Creeds of Christendom. And right here's the Nicene Creed. There's the Apostles' Creed, which was only used in the West. Interestingly enough, nobody knows its origin. And it, it's not as long and full as the Nicene is the, would be the definitive statement about all the Trinity. And on the back is the Athanasian Creed, which was really not even written by Athanasius. And the East rejects it because it really teaches the Western, uh, the Western thoughts about and I put it here in parentheses when it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And then in parentheses, I wrote, and the Son. When I was teaching this class, I was trying to show people the difference. The West uses those words, and the Son. The East said, no, 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 you don't do that. And the original creed did not have that in it. And it's a wonderful story. It's a fascinating story of how that got added. But uh, we'll get to that in time. But yeah, that's good. I'm glad you have that, G. Now... Pray that every day. We believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator, of, you know, Maker of heaven and earth. Um, but when you pray that every day, you are training your heart to believe what your mind is saying. And this is the power of, of children, with children. This is why spiritual formation is so important with children, that we teach our children these kind of things. Did you memorize the Lord's Prayer when you were young? Yeah. Why? I don't know. We just did it in Sunday school. But it was and meant it was, to give you. It was also quoted in church. It was meant, you used a lot of church, but it was meant to. What? Your parents taught it to you. It's meant, but why would we repeat that over and over and over again? So we would always remember. So that we would always remember and let it transform us as we think it through. Many times I've said it and it yeah. has an impact even while you're saying it. And this is, what, this is what we want to remember, that the prayer book of the ancient church was the book of Psalms. Scripture in itself is the prayer book of the church. So remembering and reciting and learning and memorizing, this is all very powerful to forming the spirit within. So now, we've said a lot about Jesus as the light of the world. And there's probably a whole lot more that could be said that I'm not smart enough to teach. But what do you, what do you, any questions before we move on? about thoughts we've brought up today, about following Jesus, about the light and the symbol of God, as a symbol of God. Any thoughts, questions, comments, complaints, <laughs> arguments? It's okay. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the gift of light. It is truly the source of all life know that that source is you, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Father, for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the source of our life and our light for the way. Teach us what it means to follow Him. Teach us what it means to truly follow Him with all of our heart. And as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ, would you walk with us and keep us all darkness and all harm. We ask this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen.
This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.